You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Good morning, Faith Church. If you are able and willing, would you rise for the reading of God's word? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Amen. Let me be seated. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, We've got, you know, a lot of people making a lot of uh, commotion times about rules. Uh, have you ever heard anybody, uh, you know, really just bristling at, at rules related maybe to Christianity especially, uh, saying something like, ah, all religions, including your Christian religion, it's just about a bunch of rules. Do this, don't do that. And maybe they go on to say something like, I don't need a God telling me what to do or how I should live. Thank you very much. You ever heard that? Sometimes Christians will respond with something like, well, it's not really about the rules, it's about the relationship. There's truth to that, but let me ask you this. Can you really give me an example of any real relationship that doesn't have rules? Uh, That's certainly not true in the relationship between husband and wife. It's not true in the relationship between parent and child. It's not true in the relationship between employer and employee. I would argue it's not even true with best friends. Whether implicit rules or explicit, every relationship has got parameters that surround them. So I don't think it'll do uh, much good to say that uh, rules aren't significantly important. Uh, We'll agree that it should never overshadow the idea of relationship. But I want us to think for this moment, uh, this morning, as, as we get into our discussion, that the whole idea of God's rules call us yet again to trust God. Okay, that's going to be important. We've been looking, obviously, uh, this is part two of our series called The Promise, and we're looking at this call uh, to trust God. We saw last week just a, a, a couple of key things. We started out looking at how really the call to trust God has been present from the very beginning. We said even Adam and Eve were called to trust God when things were perfect. Unfortunately, they didn't. Uh, Their act of rebellion was kind of uh, culminated with a a sense of, I can't trust you, God. I will trust me, all right? That's unfortunate. It brought, obviously, the the curse upon this earth, sin and death uh, entering in and, and corrupting everything. We said it was pretty remarkable in light of that, that God made a promise to Adam and Eve on that day that one day one of their sons would come and lift the curse, essentially crushing sin and death. Astounding, really. Uh, We also looked, though, much at Abraham last week. We, We saw how over the course of many, many generations, the promise had probably largely been forgotten because sin and corruption seemed to rule the world. Where was this son that would take away the curse? And into that context, God takes an unlikely candidate, Abraham, and says, Abe, 
you're going to be made right in your relationship with me, not by anything you've done, but what I will do. Abraham believes him, and God continues with that promise of saying, I'm going to make from you, even though you've got no kid and you're old, I'm going to make from you a nation that someday from which all the world will be blessed. Really astounding stuff. Well, as we continue with this idea of the promise, we're going to pick up with Moses. And what I want us to to recognize here really is how the call or the promise, the covenant God will make with Moses is really a continuation of what's already been going on with the promise to Adam and Eve and the promise to Abraham. A little bit about Moses. We should kind of recognize just a few important snapshots from his life. He is going to be uh, the Israelite that will be rescued from the Nile River and brought up in Pharaoh's palace while all of his fellow Israelites are in slavery. Really, uh, you say, where's, where's the promise of God here, right? I mean, enslaved? Yeah. And from this context, we know that he will grow up in the palace with all the luxuries available to him, but eventually he will see one of his fellow Israelites being mistreated by a, you know, another Egyptian. And he will, and we talked last week about our temptation to connect the dots for God, make a promise happen. Well, he's going to kill the Egyptian. And in that moment, uh, he's gripped with fear. He will flee Egypt. He will live for 40 years in the wilderness. And it seems like, again, something is completely uh, just being lost here, a forgotten uh, hope of of setting them free. But uh, it's in that context, God will speak from a burning bush out in the wilderness to say, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. I am the living God. I'm sending you back to Egypt, you will deliver the Israelites from their slavery. And indeed, he does go back uh, to Egypt. You can see this area with the pink circle, if you're able to see that, is where uh, probably they were at. And he will indeed deliver them with God's mighty power, miraculously bringing 10 plagues upon Egypt that bring Egypt to its knees. They're able to escape but they have to part miraculously through the Red Sea in order to do so. All of these things are described at length. Our goal so much this morning isn't to kind of give you the full story of Moses and all the Israelites' expedition there, but they will be delivered here down to a point of waiting, a point of waiting at Sinai. And it's at Sinai where God is going to interject with the promise that we've already read about this morning, the promise that will come through Moses and before the Israelites, okay? And so let's pick up that promise. We're gonna discuss it in two parts this morning. We'll simplify it, all right? So God's promise to Moses and the Israelites in two parts. First of all, I want us to recognize Israel would be God's prized and protected possession. And this is pretty remarkable. Really, if you think about the watching world, They've already seen the hand of God Almighty, the Israelites' God, at work. Egypt was the superpower of the world in that day, brought to their knees in devastations. Uh, the, the, the Egyptian gods, so-called, were no match for the living God of the Bible. The watching world is saying, hmm, there's something about Israel's God. Not only would Israel be delivered by this powerful God, 
but they will be sent to the promised land. They will take the promised land eventually by the hand of their God. And in this promised land, they will flourish. They will prosper. They will thrive. You see, all of this is like a giant billboard showing the power and the might and the ability of the living God on display. The rest of the nations would be confounded because it was really a common thing in all the religions of the area to say that gods were territorial. Here, the living God of Israel would follow them and deliver them wherever they happened to be. Who is like this God? So clearly, they would note that Israel is prized and protected by their God. Well, the second part of the promise is that Israel would be a holy nation of priests to the watching world. Again, this is pretty profound, all right? And here again, you can see there'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that word holy really means set apart, unique. Yeah, it's got the connotation of a purity in there. But let me tell you this, the idea of Israel being a holy nation would again mean that they were on display. From the very beginning, we said Moses was spoken to from God in the burning bush. That burning bush, that flame is a representation of God's holiness, and yet that flame didn't consume that ordinary bush. Just as God's holy presence among this very ordinary people, the Israelites, he wouldn't consume them in his holiness. There's something amazing in that. Instead, he would give them what we'll know as the law. And this is really a total of 613 commands that Israel is going to kind of be the keepers of. And these 613 commands, who can keep all of that straight? Well, you'd have to be an expert. But thank God, uh, we summed it up in 10. We commonly know those today as the 10 commandments, right? And I, I, I would be willing to bet even yet, even if you're not uh, like totally uh, up from memory work, I bet you could still get a number of those. So these 10 commandments would be a summary of this. Now, as Israel would hold these laws and keep them, they would be showing, demonstrating something of God's holiness to the watching world. Not only what was good and evil, because it certainly enabled them to discern right from wrong, but it would also even show, hey, how to, uh, you know, have a sacrifice in the midst of uh, law-breaking. And so all of these things would be a means that Israel would display to the watching world truth about the living God. And if we can just take a time out and say that the false religions, the false gods of uh, the day, not much different from today, the false religions, have various ways to try to uh, appease the gods, various ways to try to gain the favor, Many of them just seem like stumbling and bumbling in the darkness. You read about some of them in Scripture, like, uh, you know, uh, drawing blood from yourself, letting it flow. Hopefully that gets God's attention. Sacrificing a child. Eh, we can go on. Lots of other rituals that had neither the power to deliver people from sin, restore the relationship with God, or really uh, even to accomplish 
apart from maybe some demonic activity, uh, something that really uh, mattered. Uh, these, these, were, these were vain attempts to manipulate, uh, you know, oftentimes superstitiously, uh, their environment. And they were also an easy opportunity to practice the very sins that they wanted to do anyway. Uh, more on that maybe another time. But a holy nation of priests to the world, all right? That is the goal. So a light in the darkness, if you will, okay? Uh, I think it's important that we recognize that's the point of this calling. It's not making Israel like the teacher's pet. Oh, I love this Israel. No, this Israel is to be a light in the darkness to guide and point people to God, all right? So we, we need to understand that. All right, well, we've, we've got the two parts to the promise. All right, let's talk just about a couple of observations. First observation I wanna make is that God's law is good. And that may seem like a, well, duh, uh, thank you. Appreciate that point. But we need to just remind ourselves, hey, there's times, isn't there, if we're being honest? Times where we can kind of wonder, oh, I know what I ought to do. It sure doesn't seem convenient. Seems kind of burdensome. But God's laws are good. They're designed to point us to what will make us flourish. Let me tell you something, because in my ethics classes, we often have discussions on, are God's laws arbitrary? Did God just kind of randomly come up with some ideas and later call them wise? And I want to say fundamentally, no, or categorically, I should say, no. They're not, they're not random, they're not arbitrary. Every one of law, God's laws, let me just say this simply, they point us back to something about who he is and what his character is like. So let me just state it clearly. We're commanded in the 10 Commandments not to lie. Why shouldn't we lie? Not randomly because that just seemed like a good idea. It's because at its very core, it points us to the idea that God himself is truth. We don't lie because we want to walk in and experience something of the goodness that God is truthful. When we, when we get that right, we flourish, and we can go on down the line. Shouldn't commit adultery. Is that just some idea to limit your fun? No. At the core of the idea, do not commit adultery, is the fact that God himself is faithful. And we can go right down the line. Don't murder. God himself is life. He's the author, giver, and sustainer of life. You see, every one of God's commands tell us something about who he is, and they're not just some random kind of insignificant idea. As we get these right, we understand a clearer picture about who God is. And so that's part of what we mean when we say the law is good. Let me say this, that God's law is insufficient. Now, before you judge me there, <laughs> what are you saying? Uh, let, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, when I say it's insufficient is while it tells us with clarity what ought to be done, it gives us no strength, power, or ability to actually carry that out, okay? So I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm just saying it's not enough to carry things out rightly. Well, I think it doesn't take too much really discussion for us to understand that. 
We can say it this way. There isn't any standard, any system of rules and regulations out there that we don't fundamentally bristle at at some point or another, especially if these rules call us out for being in the wrong. Nobody likes to be shown to be wrong. We just don't like that. And it's true for Israel. It's true for us. Do you know that these laws will show time and time again uh, that Israel was in the wrong, and they weren't sufficient to carry this out any more than we were? At the time that God is completing the kind of the, the giving of the 613 commands to Moses, you know what the Israelites are off doing? They've gotten the attention of their high priest and said, hey, make us a golden calf because we want to worship it, and we want you to lead the way. And as they're worshiping it, they engage in all sorts of debauchery. There's sexual immorality and drunkenness going on while Moses is meeting with God to get the command. So before the law has even been given in full, before the the covenant has even been enacted, you've got the people of God failing from the start. And it's not a one-off. These people would fail time and time again, and not just in small ways, There's not a single, we'll look at this more next week, there's not a single king in Israel that really, truly led the people in a full righteousness. Most of them were just utterly wicked. They clung to their idols. They led the people in worship of false gods. This is an adulterous people by the words of Scripture. And it just doesn't get any better as you read throughout the Old Testament. So I need us to recognize when we say it's insufficient, even the original keepers of the law couldn't keep it. In fact, and really tragically, what we find is all too often, those that were called to be the light to the world by keeping the law, by showing the world God's holiness, actually stumbled into and joined the nations in the very same sins they were supposed to be separating themselves from. And so rather than being a light to the nations, they were a hypocritical example of nothing different. Now, I'm not trying to be hard on Israel. I'm saying that's the human condition. The law isn't able to strengthen the human condition uh, above and beyond showing what should be done. It gives no ability for what ought to be done. You know, there's one other way that it's insufficient, and it's really not a problem of the law so much as it's just our human nature. Because when we're not joining in with other people in the very things they do, we're also tempted at the same point to kind of pat ourselves on the back and use it to compare ourselves with others. Like something like, well, I agree that I'm a lawbreaker, but I'm not as bad as the next guy. It might sound something like this. Yeah, okay, I admit it. I lie. But who doesn't? Lies I tell really aren't that bad. It's not like it's hurting somebody or something. It's not like I've committed a crime or I'm doing something really egregious. You see, we can use the same laws and kind of make various grades of failure points and then feel better about ourselves for not going down the full uh, path of depravity. Oh, well, look at how good I am. And, and, And by the way, even though I failed... I make the right sacrifices for my sins, right? That, that the legal system allowed for 
a sacrifice to be made for sin. And so people could get smug about this even as they failed the law. And so we've got this crazy combination of people bristling against the law on one hand and on the other hand getting very self-righteous and kind of puffed up about it. Uh, We really stumble and bumble our way through this whole thing. Now, about those animal sacrifices, I need to say just in part, man, another way we get this wrong is we think that the Old Testament has no mercy in it. Do you realize that the animal sacrifice uh, was all about mercy? Believe it or not. Uh, Now, I understand this is foreign to us. But really, when an animal sacrifice was being made in accordance with the law for law-breaking, what it was in effect saying is something like this. I recognize the seriousness of my sin before a holy God. It was so serious that this innocent creature that had nothing to do with my wrongdoing had to be taken. Its life had to be given up. Its life blood poured out because of my sin, because of my wrongdoing. And here's where the grace, the mercy part kind of kicks in. It's in effect saying this lifeblood of this poor innocent creature is being a substitute for what should have been my lifeblood. Uh, do, you see, do you see what's going on here? Uh, it's pretty important that we recognize uh, this very thing. And so this, this idea uh, of the law being without any mercy is not right, uh, but it still hasn't gotten us over the hump uh, to, you know, uh, actually carrying out what's good. Now, we've got to recognize, uh, this is right in Hebrews, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They did point us ahead, though, to something better. We needed a better and more permanent sacrifice. We'll get to that in a second. So uh, let's talk just a little bit about, uh, as we we blow this up in the New Testament, I wanna talk about how Jesus is going to be the one to fulfill the promise that God gave to Moses. And he'll fulfill it because there was that human requirement that God said to Moses, if you will obey, Well, we're in a fundamental problem because nobody has truly obeyed. Enter in Jesus. This is why it is so essential that Jesus arrives on the scene. He is the God-man. He's 100% man, and he's 100% God at the same time. I don't have time or the ability to explain the math on that, but I want to tell you, after the service, after phase one questions, you can ask Dylan how that mathematics works out. I think it's all a part of some spiritual calculus, but um, we we need to recognize this is vitally important. As 100% God, Jesus is able to carry out every command of God without fail. Praise God. The reason that's important is because he's going to do it on our behalf. The fact that I can't any more than you can obey God's law in full, we want to rejoice this morning that we've got somebody that did it, and not only did it, but did it for us. When Jesus fulfilled the law, that's exactly what happens. He fulfills it for us. Now, I love this because straight up, it says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
oh, we get it so wrong when we think that the Old Testament is just being cut off at the knees and there's no connection between the two. You see, he is the one that would actually carry this out for us. Then, secondly, let's take a look at another. Jesus is at the same time going to be the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, you can look at the Hebrews passage here very clearly that Christ will appear as high priest, very clearly that it is his own blood being offered and securing an eternal redemption. We talked about already how the law wasn't able to help us to obey. We talked about how it needed a sacrifice, but it needed a sacrifice that was more able to cover over everything. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. Enter in the perfect blood of the perfect sacrifice offered by the perfect high priest. And so we've got Jesus continuing to be the fulfillment of this promise made to Moses. And then finally, and this is where, where it is gonna begin to have some application points for us presently, Jesus is gonna call his followers to holiness. Look here, this is Peter writing, saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you hear? I so much want you to see this and to hear this. Do you hear the voice of God's promise to Moses and the Israelites being reiterated here in the New Testament. You and I, if you're a follower of Christ, we are called to walk in the light. We are called as a chosen race, sons and daughters of Abraham, to be a priesthood and a holy nation. Guess what? This is the promise to Moses, but it's it's the promise in a way that people could actually carry out because we've got Jesus being the foundation of it for us. We're now called to be on mission. Folks, I, I want us to see very clearly, well, we see this every week. We state as we close, we state the Great Commission. Do we not see that's part of the mission? This is, these, are, these are connected ideas. You and I aren't meant to kind of live with a faith uh, in God that simply forgives sins and then sets us on our way to do our very own thing. No. From the beginning, from the Old Testament promises to Abraham and to Moses, we see that we're part of what God has been planning and purposing all along. You and I, if you're in Christ, are on mission. We've got a mission to be like lights in the darkness to those around us. We've got a call to walk in holiness. Uh, if you don't believe Peter, you say, hey, that's not Jesus talking. Well, okay, fine. Well, I'll, I'll give you that. Let's go to Matthew 5, right? Let your light, church, shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the same language of light in the darkness. It's the same call to walk in holiness. He's fulfilled the law, but he hasn't set us free from walking in holiness. You see the difference? So often, I encounter Christians, they're so misguided, they think that they're not called to walk in holiness because Jesus offers forgiveness. It just misreads the entirety of Scripture. Jesus has set us free from sin, 
that we might walk in the fullness of life, in the holiness of Christ, and that we might be like lights in the darkness. So this is how it's fulfilled in Jesus. He will fulfill the law of Moses. He will, uh, you know, call us to holiness. He will be that perfect sacrifice for us. Well, let me wrap up here with asking this. What does this mean for us? And I think we've already been highlighting, and I hope you're catching uh, this clear enough, that the church, those who are truly followers of Christ, are called, uh, they're, they're, they're God's prized possession. This is everything that God was kind of pointing to. Israel is fulfilled, or the larger mission of Israel is fulfilled as the church is called and fulfills its mission. The church is able to, to walk out the call that God had originally given to Moses in a way that, that you know, the people of the Old Testament simply could not. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have all that we do today in Christ. But we are, church, we are the possession of God, and we're called to shine our light in the dark. As God's possession, that means our lives don't belong to us. One thing I want to ask you this morning as we wrap up, I want to ask you, how are you relating to God? How, how are you relating to him? I mean, what is the basis for your relationship? As we're talking about this call to holiness, are you, are you inclined to put your confidence in your track record, in how good you're doing, in your good deeds outweighing your bad? Is a little repeat from last week, but we are so prone to stumble in this area of making our relationship with God primarily about our, you know, perfection or our good deeds outweighing our bad. Folks, I, I want to remind us this morning that the call to be sons and daughters of Abraham uh, precedes the call to the law. Some 430 years before Moses comes on the scene, God made Abraham right with him through faith. And that order matters. God didn't call people to holiness first and then to forgiveness. He called them to forgiveness and right standing first and then to holiness. The order is everything. It matters much. So if you're not dealing with God rightly through faith this morning, I want to call you to stop striving in your own efforts and your own desires to clean yourself up and to put yourself fully on the mercies of God. He will clean you up. It is his job. But I want to say very clearly, we're still called to walk in holiness, right? God takes us wherever we are when he forgives us. He calls us to come as we are, but he never calls us in the big picture after giving us the forgiveness to stay as we are. And I think too often what we see is churches full of people that can tell you, part one, that forgiveness is free, and it is. Let's rejoice in that. But now, let's walk in the point of that forgiveness in the first place. Set free from sin to walk in holiness. As Jesus would say, go and leave your sins, right? Uh, sin no more. Now, he's not saying be perfect, all right? But I want to ask you this morning, just very bluntly, Okay? I want to ask you, in light of this call to holiness, maybe there's some sitting here and just you would say in the transparency of your own heart, you'd say, hey, I, I know presently I've been resisting a specific area of God's kind of word, a calling. I know, truth be told, that, that that's something I'm embarrassed of. 
That's something I'm ashamed of. Folks, I, I want us to recognize, hey, growth in Christ does not happen accidentally and without intention. If God's getting your attention this morning with this call to walk in light, I want to encourage you to prayerfully do business with God. And that business isn't about establishing your forgiveness, but it's about confessing your sin and turning from it. Maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's a pattern of entertainment that is completely immoral and, and is just kind of sapping your interest in the things of God. God would call you to turn from it. Maybe, maybe it's a, a relationship that needs to end. Something that is not spurring you in the right direction. Something that's not producing fruit. God's calling you, hey, make a break. We've talked about honesty. You could talk about any number of things. Maybe we're getting the whole area of sex wrong. And we're talking about various forms of idolatry or immorality or adultery. Hey, God's calling us, make a break. Porn problem, make a break. Folks, whatever it is, spiritual laziness. Listen, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to kind of make this an overwhelming list. I'm trying to say if God is getting your attention on something clear, then, then you need to do business with God, respond to it, hand that over, knowing that the mercy that he offers us is full and it's freeing. You are not meant to walk in the darkness, church. You're meant to walk in the light. So I hope you hear my heart about that. It's not a heart of condemnation. It's a heart to say, grab hold of the grace of God and let it have its effect to make you flourish and prosper in the light. Well, let's go ahead. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you this morning. I want to thank you for the freedom that comes from your promises. Freedom to be in right relationship with you Freedom, Lord, from the bondage of sin and freedom to a much bigger calling than we're really prone to make our life about. Freedom to walk in something that is so great and so amazing to be part of your plan to deliver this world uh, from sin and death. We thank you for the promises to Abraham and to Moses. Help us as a church to know the freedom of walking in the light. Help us, God, to this watching community to, to demonstrate the power of your spirit uh, to, to help us to walk in the light. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.